Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another critical care episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Caroline Park from UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and I also have with me today Dr. Ryan Dumas, also from UT Southwestern, and uh, Brittany Bankhead from Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas. We are all trauma and acute care surgeons and surgical intensivists. Today, we'll be diving into point-of-care ultrasound and some non-invasive or less invasive cardiac output monitoring in the context of a few interesting cases. First, I'll start off with a scenario. Let's start off with patient RA. She's a 65-year-old female with a history of rheumatoid arthritis, aortic stenosis, and is presenting with hypotension from perforated sigmoid articulitis, so abdominal sepsis. In this scenario, we'll review undifferentiated shock and principles of cardiac output, oxygen delivery, with an emphasis on point-of-care ultrasounds. We'll approach the patient right now with undifferentiated shock. How would you work this up? Would we do a fluid challenge? How do we implement point-of-care ultrasound for this particular patient? Dr. Dumas, what's your take? So um, I think undifferentiated shock is one of the most common and challenging things we see in the ICU and in critical care. Um, I think the most important thing is to probably two things is to one, have a very kind of algorithmic approach to, to these patients and do the same thing every time. And two, really a lot of this can be done at the bedside actively. And what I, what I mean by that is we've kind of moved away from static measures of fluid responsiveness to more dynamic measures. Um, and also don't forget your labs. So some of the labs that you can draw, for example, while you're doing some of the things at the bedside that I'm a big fan of is SCVO2 or a mixed um, central venous gas. That'll kind of help figure out what's going on with the heart while you are uh, doing your workup. So one of the first things I do for undifferentiated shock, um, I really, uh, after, before I, I reach for the ultrasound is I start looking at um, a fluid challenge. And I think you can do that in really one of two ways. Um, and it really has to be administered as a bolus, as a challenge over 15 minutes. I think, you know, uh, traditionally 500 cc's is a reasonable amount. In a patient with an A-line, you can look for pulse pressure variation um, and differences in stroke volume variation uh, after administering that bolus. Um, and you can also very importantly um, use a passive leg raise test. The passive leg raise test is exactly as it sounds. Um, it's a test in which you raise the two lower extremities of the patient. Uh, and that administers effectively a small little bolus, probably on the order of 250 to 300 cc's uh, to the patient. And you can do the same dynamic uh, monitoring of changes in the patient's physiology at the bedside. Now, uh, this has been really quite well studied uh, as an efficacious way to determine which patients will or will not be responsive to fluid and therefore can limit uh, uh, overutilizing fluid. Um, and then now I think, you know, finally, the most important thing uh, in our armamentarium is, uh, is ultrasound and specifically bedside, uh, bedside ultrasound that we can use to determine a patient's volume status. All right. Now, do you have any like specific go-to views, uh, Dr. Dumas for these? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think the key is having, again, a uniformed approach. So start with one view all the time, every time. And the key to this in my practice is you're getting the views is the hardest part. I think actually, quite frankly, interpreting them is pretty easy. There's actually evidence that suggests that you only probably need to review about 20 to 30 of these to become uh, pretty efficient. And I'm not trying to figure out, okay, the patient has a 61% ejection fraction. I'm trying to figure out if it's low, moderate, or severe. 
right? As far as dysfunction, for example, or are, are they fuvolemic, hypervolemic, or hypovolemic? Those are just big. And so these things you should be able to quickly pick up. So to answer your question, yes, my go-to view at first is, is certainly the parasternal long. Um, and so in that view uh, is probably the, the first way and the first place I would start with a POCUS. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so the parasternal long axis, I agree. I think it's a great first view, um, you know, and thankfully we have an ultrasound ready to go. So we'll go through a couple of techniques. Um, the parasternal long axis is where the indicator or that sort of like little ridge on the um, the probe is sort of pointing towards the patient's like right shoulder or sternal notch. And you get a really good view of the left ventricle, the right ventricle, um, the aortic valves and the mitral valves. And I think it's a great way to sort of assess volume status, you know, a sort of a quick overview of contractility. Um, if, if the patient does have some valvular abnormalities, you'll be able to sort of capture those as well. So um, th this is a really nice sort of first view to look at. Um, and then you can sort of reach for your other ones. And for example, this patient, let's say she also has aortic stenosis, she'll be preload dependent. And what does that mean? That means that she might require a little bit more preload and more volume in the tank and is more reliant on that to preserve her cardiac output. So the parasternal long axis is actually really helpful to look at um, left ventricular enlargement or aortic sufficiency. Um, where you'll see like the aortic valve area is super tight. Um, they may have like critical aortic stenosis. You're just not seeing that blood flow going through. And then you actually might even see some aortic um, insufficiency. So in our approaching um, patients in shock. Now, one thing I, we've heard and we still continue to hear is using CVP. So Dr. Bankhead, one of our colleagues said it has used CVP in the past. And now um, he or she is currently asking you about it. It's hooked up. It's trending in our patient. Right now it reads 14. How do you interpret this number? What's your take on CVP, its role in assessing fluid status and hemodynamic monitoring, and not only this kind of patient, but in all patients? Yeah, so CVP monitoring is, you know, it's one way to assess your quote unquote fluid status. And I, I say that because it's easy, it's cheap. Um, those numbers are really familiar to us. They're easy recognize, easily recognizable um, to both us and our trainees, as well as nursing staff too. I think that's really important to remember that this is a multidisciplinary team and everybody's familiarity and comfort with the numbers that you're trending is, is relevant. Um, some large caveats though to using this value include, uh, you know, it's inaccuracy with mechanical ventilation, which a lot of our patients are going to be in the surgical ICU, um, as well as the fact that with a fluid challenge, an increase in this value would indicate an increase in preload, but not necessarily your systematic, um, your systemic response to a fluid challenge. Um, so its value, you have to remember, is influenced by both thoracic and abdominal pressure values. Again, something not to take lightly in the surgical ICU. Um, and kind of a good example of its utility overall as a as you know one number to monitor is is best uh, kind of indicated in this study by Merrick and um, Cavalazzi did a large meta-analysis in 2014 about the utilization of CVP for clinical decision-making and again concluded its ineffectiveness as you know one number one point to do so and to guide fluid therapy choice um, and kind of one of my favorite things about this study is the use of the words a plea for some common sense uh, in the title which I think really alludes to the reminder that using this as your only go-to number is really just a historic thing and, and not a really good go-to single value. That's a really uh, important point, and thank you for that sort of historic um, or sort of the context of that. So I guess the next question is, is 
all right, well, central venous pressure is, you know, not super invasive. We need a central line, obviously, to measure it. But what about something a little bit more invasive, right? We want a lot of information in the ICU. What about Swan-Gans catheters, a pulmonary artery catheters, or PACs? Dr. Dumas, um, how do you implement these? Which patients do you think, you know, it's helpful for? Is it really ever indicated? You know, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Speaking of historic context, uh, you know, I really, with rare exception, I'm one of the believers that PAC probably belongs in the Museum of Medical Antiquities. And I, I say that because there's really some well-done, well-designed, large trials, uh, one of which, um, even though it's an old study, it's the most recent one on PACs uh, with almost 2,000 patients that shows that there's simply more complications with them. And most commonly, those are going to be arrhythmias, but also PEs. Um, and, and keep in mind, uh, this, the tip of this artery, uh, excuse me, this catheter is in, is in the pulmonary artery. And certainly there's placement issues uh, that, that make the, the catheter significantly more difficult to place and, and obviously devastating complications like rupture when you, when you calculate a wedge. But I think most importantly, I think the biggest problem and why they've really fallen out of favors isn't so much the technical problems with the catheter um, so much as, uh, as the interpretation of the numbers. So I think it's one thing, you know, as Dr. Park, you just mentioned, we like to have a lot of data. Um, and that's completely correct. But it's another thing if you have a lot of data and you don't know how to interpret it or know what to do with it. So I think that's by and large why the PAC kind of fell out of favor because people uh, were making interventions that probably weren't actually uh, the correct thing to do uh, given what PAC numbers were being um, were being displayed. So for me, I will say that being said, in, in some very complex patients, uh, primarily pulmonary artery hypertension, where you're trying to figure out if this is a right-sided problem versus a left-sided problem, then I think that's that's much more helpful. And you might have some changes in his management as far as an, an inhalational agent that you might add or might start, or a presser agent that might be different based on those particular numbers. But by and large, uh, certainly in the surgical ICU, uh, and, and a lot of these studies were done in surgical patients, uh, I, uh, I have little uh, little utility for it. All right. Um, great. And I know you already sort of mentioned the passive blood rays and, you know, utilizing that in patients. And I, I also think that it is a very nice sort of quick and easy tool to use in, in the ICU. Um, so why don't we actually let's move on to our next patient here. So um, this is a 75 year old male um, with abdominal pain distension with severe pancreatitis, um, has a history of obesity, alcoholism, no surgical history. What are the differential diagnoses here? Patient's tachycardic, hypotensive 90 over 60s, increasing oxygen requirement has been oliguric despite uh, a few liters of LR boluses in the past several hours. Dr. Bankhead, you know, have we sort of like gone off trajectory here? When is it enough fluid? When do you start using vasopressors? And then when do you start looking at other sort of ways to monitor these patients? I have to say, Caroline, I know we are recording a podcast, but that shows my level level of nerdery in the ICU because you start talking about this patient and I'm already excited and getting to figure out what's going on with this patient. So um, I think your differential is really broad here and um, your list of potential things is huge. So some of the big ones that you probably go to are abdominal sepsis, obviously, hypovolemia, third spacing, secondary to your pancreatitis, Abdominal compartment syndrome is certainly in there. Pulmonary embolism really hasn't been ruled out. Um, you know, another one not to forget about is alcohol withdrawal, depending on his current usage amount, how long he's been an inpatient for. That's another um, possible differential. Um, but really, you know, whether or not I start vasopressors next are going to depend on how much this patient weighs and whether or not we've hit that 30 cc per kilo target. 
Um, since he's had three leaders already, the most likely answer, depending on, um, again, on his weight, is probably going to be yes. So I would go ahead and start them at this point. Um, uh, my choice would really be dependent on, my choice of vasopressor is going to be dependent on what I think the most likely cause of a shock is. And that is going to be heavily contingent upon, um, you know, we're talking about a lot of numbers and values and diagnostics, but, you know, we, lest we not forget the clinical exam, is going to give us a lot of information, um, as well as those lab values and what else we see at the bedside using some of those non-invasives like POCUS and FlowTrack. Um, so Caroline, how do you use POCUS in this situation? I mean, I, I approach these patients just exactly as you mentioned with um, early goal-directed therapy. But, you know, when they fall through trajectory, I think that needs to be recognized pretty quickly. And especially if they have confounding problems, like, you know, they're hypovolemic from dehydration, third spacing, especially pancreatitis, heart failure, you know, maybe they're several days in now and now have sepsis, necrotizing pancreatitis. Um, I find that it's extremely helpful. And, you know, what I really love about POCUS or point of care ultrasound is it's it's really, truly non-invasive, Right. It's real-time information. You can make decisions pretty quickly and go down your decision tree. I think this patient likely has hypovolemic pancreatitis. I think infection is um, less likely, um, but I agree like looking at the whole picture, um, but realizing that there is operator variability in technique and interpretation. I don't think we've quite talked about that yet, but if you're like the, you know, the intensivist that's seeing the patient every single day, I think it's going to be super helpful. And it's like very, um, I think it's very important to, to realize that, that there's going to be a little bit of variation and, you know, sort of looking at these views. And so, you know, when I'm kind of thinking about the, the differential, we talked about the peristernal, uh, the long axis, the short axis is, is, is helpful in other ways as well. I can kind of get a better look at the left ventricle and the right ventricle. And so this is where the ultrasound probe is, um, the indicator is now sort of pointing up towards like the left shoulder. So you're kind of looking at the left ventricle side by side. And, um, you know, what you're looking for is basically contractility left ventricle, the right ventricle itself as well you know, is it flattened? Is it large? Um, is there a lot of fluid in the right ventricle? Am I concerned that the patient's really hypovolemic? Left ventricle is contracting really well. Maybe, you know, if the, if the walls of the right ventricle are really, you know, sort of kissing each other, um, I'd be, you know, maybe the patient doesn't have enough volume um, in place. And so uh, that view is, is especially helpful for me. And then, of course, you know, I think um, one thing that we need to keep uh, focus on is what knowing what normal is and abnormal. So, when the left ventricle is really contracting and like the walls are totally like literally clapping hands together and the right ventricle also looks the same, you know, I'd be concerned that this patient is, is you know, has hyperdynamic, um, a hyperdynamic heart. And then of course, like one thing you also have to think about is practicing and knowing what normal is so that you can distinguish what abnormal is. So with a heart that's not beating so well or someone with, who's extremely bradycardic, you want to look for things like, you know, global hypokinesis, um, patients will, you know, have maybe global dysfunction and their entire heart is just not really contracting well. So this is helpful when you're thinking about, you know, this patient has some cardiac dysfunction, they have some underlying cardiac comorbidity, I might be wishing for a different pressure because of that. So a couple of things um, to also mention, in addition to the peristomal short is the four chamber. I think a lot of us really like this one um, because it, you know, has like that nice view of the four chambers. You're looking at the atria, which are on the bottom. So everything's flipped and the ventricles are on the top. And I think it's a really nice way to kind of look at the heart in, in sort of a global way. Um, when you're looking at uh, both, you know, for regurgitation, contractility, you can also see the septum uh, there as well. So, you know, I would say for someone like this, I have, a, you know, a couple of diagnoses 
in my, you know, in the back of my head, just like you said, PE, um, hypovolemia, things like that. And I taking focus into account and looking at these different views um, and, you know, adding those kinds of interventions and seeing what happens, you know, within minutes or even hours is going to be very helpful for me. Um, but let's move on. What about other things, cooler things? So what about FlowTrack, Dr. Bankhead? Can you give us some background on what it is, how you use it? What are some of the limitations and pitfalls? Yeah, for sure. So remember that FlowTrack, depending on your institution and where you're at, might be called something different. I know some places call it the Vigileo and, and it might have a different name for your, your shop. Um, and at some point, as far as setting it up, really try to tag along with one of your ICU nurses who's setting it up. Um, I think you can learn a lot by doing that for many different things, but especially for this one. Um, but on a basic level, it requires uh, inserting an arterial line, which most of us know about. And then the device is connected uh, to that arterial line using a standard pressure transducer. And then the arterial pressure waveform analysis is used to calculate your stroke volume and cardiac output. The parameters you can choose to display, um, which are calculated from this transducer, are your stroke volume, your stroke volume variation, your mean arterial pressure or your MAP, uh, your systemic vascular resistance, your cardiac output, and your cardiac index. Um, and depending on the type of shock you're treating, you may choose to have your screen visualize these, number, these numbers all sequentially over time as a trend um, or as a real-time gauge. And I think it calibrates every um, 20 seconds. Um, and as for your patient selection, in general, remember that um, your non-intubated patients and your patients with an arrhythmia are not good utilizer, utilizers of the FlowTrack system. Um, and if you open up the FlowTrack manual itself, the company uh, delves even further on to say that your patient must be um, actually on a 100% controlled setting with fixed tidal volume rates of at least eight cc's per kilo on that controlled rate to really be the absolute perfect candidate for this. Um, and that the use of flow track in a patient with AFib is actually not warranted. Um, so patients that you may, uh, that you also may choose to use flow track on, but that you have to be really careful about considering its utility with, um, and some caveats with are going to be those with extremely low vascular resistance. So things like cirrhosis and septic shock. Um, and for me, you know, the best utility of this, which is a lot like any non-invasive tool you're going to be using is going to be. Um, you know, again, we've talked about static and dynamic, but really monitoring the trends and assessing the responses to your intervention, um, which, you know, at this point are going to be your fluid challenges and your fluid pulses. Um, and that really requires two things, which is both setting up your non-invasive tool that you're measuring, but also being present at the bedside to watch those real-time numbers as the fluid challenge, uh, as the fluid challenge is actually happening. I love that overview. And I, I think, um, I think most of us are familiar with this. Um, and I do like that. It's very visual. I'm a very graph, you know, I'm a very visual person. I like to see the gauges, you know, they're in the green. What's the, um, systemic vascular resistance. What's the, you know, the variability in the stroke volume. So, um, again, not a static number. Um, it's a dynamic thing. So Dr. Dumas, um, now our patient has escalating FiO2 and PEEP requirements throughout the day, but suddenly is tachycardic to the one thirties, desaturating to the eighties, is being bagged by respiratory therapy. What are your thoughts here? What's in your differential? Yeah, that's that's obviously a really concerning constellation of symptoms for sure. Um, and immediately, you know, we've mentioned P a few times already in this podcast, but that would be very high on my on my differential. And again, reach into the ultrasound probe and um, focus. We're going to be able to uh, rule out a lot of things, but also um, diagnose a lot of things. And so, 
the best view for this, uh, in my opinion, is a short axis in uh, ultrasound. And that's going to be, you're going to be looking for the D sign or McConnell sign. And that denotes RV strain. So what that D is, is the flattening of the intraventricular septum. Um, and that's going to be uh, the bowing of the, the septum into the left ventricle. And so that's really what causes the, obstruct the obstructive shock that we see uh, in PE, because the increased right-sided pressures cause the septum to bow into the left, to decrease your, uh, your end diastolic left ventricular volume, and therefore your stroke volume. So uh, POCUS is perfect for this. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, I think, and I think it's really important to, to see what that looks like on the D sign or conal sign, just like you said. Um, but you know, why don't we just move down a little bit more? Let's say this patient doesn't have any desaturating issues, but we're kind of thinking about volume status again. You know, what about IVC diameter? We haven't really talked about that. How do you measure it? You know, where do you measure it? What does this information provide you? Yeah, I, I think this is key. I think probably I would argue that the IVC diameter is the easiest to obtain uh, with some exceptions, uh, open abdomen being the most notable one for surgical patients, but uh, easiest to obtain, most consistently kind of reproducible. Um, I like to, actually, I like to do it two different ways. I like to start in the subxiphoid view, um, but also, and sometimes you can see essentially the cable uh, atrial junction, um, right where the, the, uh, the confluence of the hepatic veins. Um, but I also uh, think it's very reasonable to kind of start right where you would be doing a gallbladder ultrasound. And actually, don't confuse the gallbladder and the IVC. That's that's easy to do. But you want to find the IVC in the cross-sectional um, uh, plane and then slowly rotate your probe and elongate the IVC. And then if you drop M-mode on to the um, IVC, which M-mode just simply is uh, one ultrasound line over time, um, and so you can measure collapsibility. And so this is absolutely key. So the, the really, the, it's, it's pretty easy. And now keep in mind, there are some caveats. Is the patient mechanically ventilated? Are they awake? Uh, that's the biggest one. Um, but uh, for, for awake patients um, who have um, a greater than 50% collapsibility, that's going to be uh, correlated to a CVP of probably somewhere between uh, zero and five. Uh, whereas an awake patient who has no collapsibility or less than 50% collapsibility uh, and um, a large IVC, and so that the cutoff there is two centimeters, uh, that's gonna be, you know, quote unquote, full tank and probably a CVP on the order of 15. Um, so one of the things you can have the patient do too, and that you should do when measuring these is sniff, have, it's called, there's a so-called sniff test and they can kind of sniff. And so again, just, it, it makes sense, right? If a patient has a, a low CV or a low CVP, and they, a lot of variability, which goes back to stroke volume variability, right? They have a lot of variability beat to beat and breath to breath, and that's gonna be indicative of a low volume status. So I think the ultrasound is absolutely key here and IVC diameters and being able to readily obtain uh, IVC measurements uh, with POCUS should be in really any bedside practitioner's armamentarium. Yeah, I think the sub-zyphoid view is great, but sometimes in patients with open abdomens, it can be a little tough. I have used the transaxillary view in that situation to find the IVC. You know, you kind of follow the spine, you can see the IVC and you can see the uh, the changes in diameter is there. But, you know, you see when you're intra-abdominal, um, we're going through trans-abdominal views, you know, find the liver, find your IVC diameter, um, and then uh, through the right atrium. And basically, as you mentioned, you're kind of looking for that collapsibility you know, especially in, with a patient who's intubated, um, it's going to be really important. And I think it's important when we 
extrapolate some of those um, data points from, from uh, in, into our clinical practice. Okay, this is our last scenario. Um, so let's talk about a 37-year-old gentleman, he's high-speed MVC, he's intubated in the field for a low GCS, he's hypotensive, tachycardic, narrowed pulse pressure, and on ultrasound has a, um, a black stripe around his heart. Dr. Bankhead, what are your thoughts? What are you gonna do next? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I'll say about this scenario is that while it's, you know, kind of seemingly obvious today that we're trying to everyone to lead everyone towards the diagnosis of cardiac tamponade, I think it's important to remember that this is a young trauma patient who is seemingly otherwise healthy. And for clinical context, if this patient were elderly, had a known history of CHF, had a low mechanism of injury, and was hemodynamically normal and asymptomatic, that these same findings that you would have on your ultrasound might actually lead to no change in clinical management at all. Um, but that being said, in this young, otherwise healthy patient who's hypotensive after blunt trauma, has a narrowed pulse pressure, we're going to really quickly utilize our ultrasound, as Caroline discussed, um, and evaluate for pericardial effusion as evidenced by that small black stripe surrounding the heart. Um, and then as you move along, as you find the RV, um, collapse here first of your wall where it's, you know, really more used to low pressure systems can be one of the first diagnostic signs of tamponade. Um, so then, you know, clinically in this patient, you really wouldn't be surprised if he um, might be trying to kind of fight you. He doesn't want to be laying down. He wants to be sitting up. Um, he might be complaining of shortness of breath. Um, and so the last thing you'd want to do is fight him on that position that he wants to be in. Um, or to intubate them early in the ED. So I, you know, quickly let my operating room know that we're on our way. Um, as anesthesia prepared to intubate, we'd have the patient prepped in the operating room, um, everybody on the team scrubbed. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're talking just about POCUS today, but utilizing your ultrasound for the rest of your exam. So depending on what you find on the rest of your fast, um, if they had a positive concomitant abdominal fast exam, um, you know, I'd probably start with a high midline incision so I could quickly do that uh, transabdominal pericardial window, which is kind of my favorite one. <laughs> um, and then if positive, continue our incision upwards for sternotomy. Um, but then if negative, you'd be able to extend inferiorly to find the cause of that positive fast um, that you had gotten. Um, I'd also have a really, really low threshold for putting in chest tubes in this patient. If he at all had any decreased breath sounds or was difficult to bag, um, or if on your EFAST, you were worried about a pneumothorax um, because, uh, you know, a blunt injury causing tamponade in this patient would definitely have a higher incidence of having other concomitant thoracic injuries. Thank you so much for taking us through that scenario. I know a lot of times, especially in blunt injury, obviously they can be a little more complicated because there's some sort of competing priorities. But, you know, certainly these, you know, um, ultrasounds with cardiac tamponade can be very dramatic. Um, and, you know, with obstructive shock, it's, it's extremely important to, to relieve that. All right, well, Dr. Bankhead, we're going to actually go back to our last patient with sepsis, um, aortic stenosis. So by the way, that patient also happens to have a history of congestive heart failure, maybe, you know, child's B cirrhosis and has acute on chronic renal failure as well. So, you know, how do you approach these more complicated patients with some competing priorities? Um, what's your fluid management strategy like, uh, pressure management, et cetera? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So these patients can be really difficult to manage. And, um, you know, if there's one thing that I can advocate for today after an entire podcast worth of discussion of non-invasive tools of hemodynamic monitoring, it's really that being at the bedside is one of the most important things you can do for a patient like this. 
um, for all of our patients, obviously, but especially these, because these patients, like you mentioned, um, are, they're going to have a lot of, um, concomitant things going on. And, you know, in addition to the other ones who, um, may or definitively have two etiologies of their shock, um, invaluable to really have good real-time discussion with the nurse about what presser you want titrated, what fluid you want given, and what those non-invasive numbers do as you make those adjustments in real time. Um, and, you know, we talked about a little bit about the utility of PA catheters earlier. And while I'm also not a large advocate for them, um, as the residents at my institution know, these patients who do have two etiologies of shock and also don't respond to the therapies with which I've started or administered, those might be the ones I might consider um, a PA catheter in. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'd advocate for, advocate for in the surgical patient that you mentioned with CHF, um, you know, not necessarily in tamponade, obviously, but is in other types of shock, not to be afraid to give fluid to this patient population. I think we see that a lot um, in other ICUs and down in the ED. Um, you know, they get this reported EF of on their last echo, it was 25%. It doesn't matter. A patient with an EF of 25% needs IV fluid resuscitation and septic shock, just like a patient who has a normal EF does. Um, and, you know, the things that might change would be, you know, really being extra cognizant of that um, dynamic status and, you know, really making absolutely sure I'm not a fan of maintenance fluids anyway in the ICU, but really making sure that everything um, has been concentrated, making sure that all those maintenance fluids have been DC'd. Um, and as I felt like I was getting closer to their fluid responsiveness levels, I've used, you know, maybe smaller, smaller aliquots of my fluid boluses, maybe, maybe even just as 250 or 500 CC boluses, um, then full liters at a time. Well, I think we've gone through a lot of interesting scenarios today. We talked a lot about technologies that we're, you know, we're all pretty familiar with, and I'm sure other intensivists in the country are as well. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that this discussion um, really does need uh, to touch upon some of the other either newer or perhaps even older technologies that people may not know about. So I think the main thing about non-invasive monitoring or maybe less invasive monitoring is like, what are the principles that we're actually trying to study, right? So the basic principles or physiology, uh, physics, chemistry that we're looking at are things like volume, uh, vascular uh, resistance, the supply um, and demand, right? To, the two go together in addition to temperature. So all of these technologies are trying to, um, to measure these kinds of things. So um, just very briefly, uh, one of them is called Pico. And again, we do not have any sort of relationships with any of these products. Um, it's essentially kind of like what the flow track does. You're looking at the arterial line, the central venous line. It is a pulse contour analysis. You can put it in pretty much any artery um, in the extremity. And um, it does have a catheter temperature sensor at the tip as well. And it does use sort of a proprietary algorithm at looking um, at the sort of um, area below the curves and measuring compliance. And I'll kind of give you the same numbers that you'll get with like FlowTrack, for example. You're still going to get your cardiac output, your indices, your uh, vascular resistance, and your um, uh, variations. Um, the other one that I thought was really interesting was lithium dilution. That's where you basically give like a micro dose of lithium and you basically like sample from an arterial line um, to look at um, cardiac output. There are other very complicated things that boil down to just like looking at um, cardiac output monitoring from respiratory derived equations. And um, lastly, uh, one on bioimpedance, electrical bioimpedance. So basically sending a voltage throughout the thorax 
and actually calculating your stroke volume and then your cardiac output from that. So that's called cheetah. Um, and it basically, it's just these sort of stick pads, sticky pads that you place uh, sort of on the upper chest and on sort of the left and right hemiabdomen and looking at these sort of um, changes in compliance and uh, where the, those patients are on the starting curve. And then lastly, plethysmography. This is obviously nothing new. We use it every day to measure oxygen saturations on our patients. But now people are using this very minimally invasive technology to kind of look at um, sort of pulsatile flow cycles and, again, using these very calculated, very specific algorithms um, uh, tailored to our patients to measure cardiac output and not. So take-home points for today, we discussed a couple scenarios, looking at patients with shock, the various types, um, looking at specific technologies. We did focus a lot on point-of-care ultrasound today, um, but basically our patients are complex. They're becoming more complex with multiple comorbidities. We kind of talked about the principles of measuring cardiac output and sort of what affects those things and how to do that, how we use point-of-care ultrasound in order to um, evaluate our patients and how to you know, deliver really tailored um, and sort of time-sensitive care. Thank you everyone for joining us today in our podcast on point of care ultrasound, non-invasive therapies and non-invasive cardiac output monitoring. We discussed a couple cases and we really appreciate your time today. So until then. Dominate the day. Dominate the day. All right. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.